Immersive Audio Podcast. In conversation with industry thought leaders, practitioners, artists, academics, and entrepreneurs, discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry, from art, science, and business, to practical insights and project case studies. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. Hello, and welcome to the Immersive Audio Podcast. My guest today is Guillaume Lenost, Executive Director and Creative Technologies at L Acoustics. Guillaume, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Oliver. How are you today? I'm fantastic. Thank you. And how are you today? Yeah, I'm great. Thanks. Are you in London, same as me? Yes, I am actually in, uh, on the top of the hill in South London, looking at the fog at the moment. Okay, interesting. It's rather chilly. Yeah, winter is coming for sure. <laughs> Guillaume, you had a really interesting career in audio and can you tell us a little bit more about your background and how did you get into audio to begin with? Sure. Well, I could start very early actually with uh, starting music as a kid. When I remember when I was in um, in uh, secondary school, I started uh, classical flute uh, because I heard uh, Ravel Bolero and it was something amazing and I wanted to play that. And actually I started flute and never played this piece. But anyway, that was the start uh, of uh, the first step into the music world. And then obviously with all the, like all teenagers, I started to play uh, guitar. I was pretty bad, so I turned to bass guitar, and that was pretty good. So uh, I ended up being a professional bass player uh, alongside my studies. So I did an engineering pass, uh, studying mathematics and physics, and also playing music quite a lot on the side. And I ended up um, uh, with a Master of Science at IRCAM, which is a French laboratory um, where you can study composition and also science. And I did a, a master in signal processing there and room acoustics. And uh, on the side, I started also my career as a professional musician, which I did for uh, four years. And then the, actually the scientific side caught me again. And I, I started to connect the two dots between the music, the live side and the science side by starting working in a French company called L Acoustics. And this company is one of the leaders in the large scale sound reinforcement uh, market. So you could see this speakers in, uh, for example, the London Olympics, uh, the O2 Arena most of the time, uh, the Brixton Academy, uh, a lot of venues in London and across the world as well. So that was that was uh, a starting point. And uh, uh, I also ventured into different uh, startup uh, projects uh, with some French colleagues. One of them was called Audio Gaming, which is now more uh, famous as Novelab. And Novelab is a VR uh, production studio. And uh, they do a lot of immersive audio for um, apps or VR experiences or, or museum installations as well. So they've won a lot of awards uh, over the past five years. So that's still a, quite a, a nice project ongoing. So I did a bit of gaming and VR, but mostly now it's about immersive audio for live sound, which is quite an interesting topic as well. I'm actually quite curious, how did you end up in London? <laughs> that's, that's a family affair. So basically I was all happy in Paris with my band touring in different cities in the country and uh, and doing my uh, my uh, engineering job at Al Acoustics at the same time. And my wife decided to find a position in the city, you know. So it was a big uh, a big uh, a moment for us to decide whether to move or stay in Paris. And uh, we we decided to 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 take the. Um, to take the move and uh, I had to basically uh, reshuffle a bit my, my job um, organization, but I managed to continue working with the French company. So that's a long going uh, story, which is great. And as I know, it worked out pretty well because I know L Acoustics has a really nice and strong presence in London. You have uh, multiple venues, you have a lovely studio and listening room, which I had the pleasure to attend just before COVID. Can you tell us a little bit how you set up in London and uh, about your colleagues and infrastructure here locally? Sure. So basically, uh, uh, a few years after I arrived in London, we started to, there was the opportunity for us as well to create an office. So we, we found a lovely place in, in North London, in Highgate, which was a, a former Post office uh, and with a lot of ceiling height, which is always great when you want to build studios. You know, especially with um, height speakers, you need a lot of ceiling height. And uh, so we managed to build two rooms uh, within the room, so completely isolated from the outside world. And uh, we have a, a big showroom, which is about 100 square meters, with uh, two 3D sound systems inside, uh, which are more targeting residential applications, I would say. And we have also a music production studio, which is uh, 20, 
18.1.5 at the moment. So it's pretty, pretty big in terms of setup where we do a lot of uh, R&D, mixing, uh, pre-productions, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, uh, it's uh, managed by uh, a team of around 15 people in the office. So uh, split between sales, applications, and uh, research and development. How big is Alacoustics globally? So it's around 500 people worldwide. The main, uh, the main uh, staff, most of the staff is in France, but we have uh, uh, R&D and factories in Germany as well. In the east of France, we have a, a big business office in Los Angeles and uh, uh, R&D space in, uh, in London as well. So we are opening an, an office in Singapore as well uh, as we speak. So it's really uh, um, quite widespread, but um, the... Most of the people are, are in the headquarters in the south of Paris. We have 75% of our turnover, which is uh, international. So for, for a medium-sized company, it's quite a, a big part of the turnover. You've had a, a rather long run at L Acoustics. What's your typical day is like these days? So... Um, it's uh, now I, I am at the director's level, so it's a lot of uh, coordination of activities and, uh, and different projects. And um, so there is obviously a lot of meetings to kick off projects or, or do follow-ups. And uh, that's one part. And the, the, the other very important part is uh, also about innovation. So I'm, I'm heading the creative technologies department. And this department is basically looking at what is the future of live sound. So uh, I'm looking at a lot of interactions between live sound and live video, for example, or what's the modalities between uh, lighting design and sound design and uh, what can we improve in terms of uh, audio quality for the audiences and what's going to be the future of live sound with all these new trends between in-person gigs in venues and live streams and the new trends of you know being there but not there and the cross modalities between physical and virtual, et cetera, et cetera. So there is a lot of topics at the moment because this has accelerated quite, quite fast over the past 12 months. So I'm quite busy at the moment to try defining a clear roadmap. Uh, and also because we're in a good position to drive the industry, we are also sometimes really far ahead from some current practices. So for example, immersive audio for live sound was a topic we really... Um, pushed and, and drived uh, forward um, during the last five years. And now it's becoming very, very mainstream now in the live industry. So yeah, typical day is really uh, to answer in a, in a short form, a lot of meetings and a lot of uh, forward thinking. Well, and that's where we're going to focus most part of our conversation, actually. But before we go there, um, I'm just actually curious to hear, how would you compare audio industries between the UK and France, what were the key differences or similarities perhaps? So if I, if I answer with a more generic scope than just the live industry, I think uh, the, the UK audio industry has a much, much longer heritage, I would say, with all the brands, you know, all the famous brands like uh, SSL and Nee and, uh, you know, all these uh, companies with uh, Midas, for example, with a very long history behind them and i think it's mostly because the, the 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 pop music started more in the uk than france to be honest so I, I believe that the industry in the uk followed up very very quickly uh and it could be between the studio techniques and the and the pa techniques as well so there were a lot of uk companies uh that started uh, in the late 60s or 70s and uh, that followed up just the, the you know the rise of the pop business basically and um uh i believe that uh, one of the first uh, pa so there were companies in the US as well, obviously, but there were also very famous companies in the UK in terms of sound reinforcement. And today, I think in the 90s, uh, there was some very interesting developments in France because the, in France, we developed a lot of technologies for live sound that now are still the reference. So I'm talking about the, the concept of line source, you know, these big J-shaped speakers that you see on now on the left and right uh, side of the stage. These were concepts that were uh, patented by Alacoustics, actually, in France. And I would say now that uh, still, I guess, in the years 2000, the, the UK was a bit more uh, innovative 
because of also a lot of small startups and uh, the tech ecosystem was a bit more dynamic than in France. I remember when I arrived in London in 2011, for example, I was amazed by the dynamism of all these small companies doing, uh, you know, um, interesting audio plugins or music tech or companies like Roly. I'm sure you know them that started in North London and all these ecosystems around, you know, the the, um, the King's Cross area with a Spitfire audio, Roly, etc., etc. But now, since five to six years, I believe that in Paris, there is a very strong dynamism as well. And uh, you could find very interesting uh, startups in audio and also the mixture between audio and machine learning, which is something very, very strong in France as well. So I believe that um, there are some good opportunities on, on, in the two countries at the moment. How did it start at Elacoustics? What was the initial kind of nudge or idea that um, made you realize this is going to be big in years to come? Uh, let's start doing our R&D and let's start investigating. Let's see how we can implement it within live sound sector. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a very interesting question because uh, usually what matters in, in live sound when you go to see a gig, it's you have to hear the sound. You know, that's the first mission of live sound. It's to, to get coverage to get SPL. And uh, usually the people are happy when it's loud, loud enough at least. Maybe it's sometimes it's too loud, to be honest, and a lot of gigs could be too loud uh, these days. But um, th there is a big frustration in live domain, which is it's still using, I mean, until now, most of the gigs are, are still using a fairly basic concept of stereo. And stereo is working well, and you all know that, if you're sitting between the two speakers. Right. So in a home environment, it's quite fine. You have your speakers on, the, on your desk and you can be uh, between the left and the right and you have a nice image. So we all know this uh, phantom image concept. But in a live sound concept, uh, in a live sound setting, the scale is so big that uh, to get this phantom image, there is a fine line which is coming from the very center of the stage to the FOH console, uh, where you can get that. And the mixing engineer is usually in the best spot in the house. Except from that, if you move one meter to the left or one meter to the right, which is basically 99% of the audience, you hear mono sound. And given the scale of that, it's actually a bad mono. It's a bad mono because there is the, the speaker closest to you, which is giving you the, the main information. And you have another speaker, which is giving you a delayed information that could still be quite loud with a different frequency contour. And basically, it's polluting your, your experience. So you're either in a good stereo for 1% of the, of the audience or in a bad mono for 99% of the audience. And that's a problem we wanted to tackle with different ways to, to set up the, the speaker systems, that's one aspect, and different mixing techniques, that's another aspect. Because most of the gear for live sound is very, very good quality, very optimized from uh, you know digital microphones to an uh, amazing mixing console that could go up to 192 kilohertz sampling rate. And, and, uh, but all of that is going to only two speakers and mostly in mono. So that, that's a big shame, actually. And um, so we, we started to experience about, you know, to, to think about what could we improve. And then we started to think about how could we deploy these loudspeakers differently. And we ended up uh, deploying them in, a, in the front array rather than just two left and right stacks. So basically, you could take quite the same amount of speakers, but instead of doing a left stack and a right stack, you do an array of speakers above the stage. A bit like a soundbar, you know, if you know, uh, okay, you're watching TV, you have the soundbar to, to, go to do some specialization. So basically, it's in a way quite a similar concept, but uh, except we, we, we really um, dedicate specific algorithms to mix the content for each of these speakers. And the end result of that is actually we improve drastically the music experience for the listener. And from 1% of the people uh, that would get a good imaging, we go to up to 85, 89, 90% sometimes. So it's a massive improvement in terms of um, music experience for, for the listener. So it has been quite a journey because we had to convince the production companies to, you know, change all their rigging practices to, you know, uh, dimension their trucks. That's my left array. That's my right array. I know I need this amount of riggers to to set up my production, and uh, my crew can be dimensioned this way. So it was really a, a, an optimized and almost a routine process, you know. And going from that to deploying speakers differently, uh, that was a big change for them. Um, Changing the mixing practices for the, the mixing engineer was a big change as well. And uh, it was quite a long process to convince all the people in the chain to, to try that. So from we had fairly, um, fairly rapidly, we had some um, 
products that we wanted to to push to the market. But the the, the market push was actually significantly long, a few years. And now we see that it's very, very much accelerating and we see an exponential acceptance of these technologies on the, on the live market. So, yeah, I think it really came from a frustration of um, having amazing gear and not having an amazing experience in the end. And that, that's what we wanted to, to change. Your kind of entire effort that involves hardware, software, IP, all packaged under one umbrella called ELISA. Can you explain what is ELISA from hardware and software to implementation and even wider philosophy and what makes it unique? Yes, so that's basically the, the code name for the technology we've been pushing to the, to the market. And uh, it's including uh, speaker simulation software where you can say uh, we have a software called SunVision. You can place a speaker, simulate its coverage in a given venue in 3D. There is an object-based uh, production suite, uh, which is uh, made of a control software, uh, some mixing console integrations and a processing hardware, uh, an object-based renderer. And we also have some uh, partnership with different um, uh, different um, technology providers, could be tracking systems or show control systems, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's a full, um, it's a big umbrella of different devices, and uh, and uh, I think it's very exciting because going out of the stereo paradigm is opening a lot of doors for creativity, and that's what's getting very interesting. You know, we start to talk with the video department, with the the lighting department to see, oh, now we can track audio. Can we, you know, localize the audio and the image uh, at the same time? And uh, and uh, it's creating very interesting discussions. So, yeah, that's uh, called the ELISA technology. And uh, what's interesting is that uh, we have seen a lot of, um, how could I say that, maybe not copycats, but uh, similar initiatives uh, within the industry. So all the major players are followed now with uh, similar products and uh, it's becoming really uh, a standard. Uh, immersive audio is really becoming a, a big concept in live sound. And it was not the case at all uh, eight years ago. The core components of the ELISA technology we have been developing, there are two products. There is one called the ELISA controller, which is a, a mixing software. Okay, It runs on a Mac or PC. And this, uh, this application connects to another product, which is called the ELISA processor, which is um, an audio hardware real-time processor that can accept up to 96 audio inputs or objects and render up to 64 speakers signals. Okay, so in a way, it's quite similar to uh, what you could find for cinemas with Dolby Atmos, where you have a mixing suite and a hardware renderer. Okay, but this is this is really designed for live sound. So the, the, the unique um, uh, points in our approach are you can play with any speaker layout you want. It could be just a frontal system. It could be a dome of speaker if you do VR for the masses, you know, like a 360 video in a dome. Uh, it could be just ceilings of speaker. It could be a full 3D system, like a, like a no Dolby Atmos configuration. Um, and uh, it's fully object-based. So it means that uh, instead of mixing every channel of a console, every channel could become an, an audio object that you have the freedom to pan. So that's one aspect. But one of the very important aspects is also ELISA. It's also about the speaker design. And when I talk about speaker design, we have tools that can help a production design a, an immersive sound system. It's always very hard to scale a surround system, for example. How do you play 5.1 for uh, 1,000 people at the same time? You know, It's, it's not that easy. Uh, how do you design a dome for 2,000 people for an EDM festival? And these are scale issues that uh, we manage to simulate uh, in our speaker design software called SoundVision. And that's a, a unique approach on the market. We are the only manufacturer that can guarantee that a, an immersive speaker design is going to work at a given scale. So that, that I think there are the main differences. And um, we developed a very strong relationship with console manufacturers as well. So now we have, uh, basically, you can mix in Elisa on the four uh, major brands out there, Avid, Digico, SSL, and Yamaha. So all of these console brands uh, allow a very easy uh, object-based mode directly on the console. So that's uh, one of the unique points as well. The goal is not to make it more difficult, it's to you know, unleash the creativity for the mixer. And speaking of creativity, so far it's obviously coming across as a very 
robust design specifically to work in certain contexts with certain integration method. But what if we kind of opened up opportunity to maybe an electronic music producer with 15 speakers, third-party manufacturers can bring Elisa technology to their door, be Ableton Live or Pro Tools, whatever, and kind of maybe create with that technology in mind and then conceive their live performance on stage whilst in the studio and then just scale up. No, it's a, it's a very interesting point because that's the whole key, right? To drive these projects, we need to drive the creation steps. And that's that's key. I completely agree. And um, we've been working very hard on these topics. And um, we're going to announce very soon um, products that will basically enable this kind of workflows directly from the home environment. And uh, we'll announce that uh, early in 2021. So I, I cannot disclose much now, but uh, it's it's very, very soon. And uh, it means that uh, you could get all the access to the Elisa ecosystem directly from a, a home setup. And um, and I think that's going to be key to, uh, you know, for sound designers working. And there is a lot of people working in immersive audios that do different projects. You know, I know many people in London, they do uh, immersive uh, movie scoring, and then they could do uh, an installation in the museum on an art piece, or sometimes do uh, electronic collaboration with DJs. And uh, it, it's quite broad. So it's, it's sometimes quite hard, I find, to find the, the right tool for the right job. You know, uh, sometimes you feel that... Uh, for VR, you you usually work in ambisonics, and uh, then uh, it's not maybe suited for live sound because it doesn't scale very well, and uh, and uh, it's also related to very uh, you know uh, ambisonics friendly speaker layouts, which is not always the case in live sound. So we stick to a fully object based approach, and it actually gives a lot of flexibility for a lot of projects. So I think there is a strong um, a strong argument for object-based audio in general to, to for someone that can have a lot of diverse uh, projects to handle. I think that's very interesting, and this is why we wanted to to develop tools also for the you know the the sound designers and the creators more in their home environment and the home studio environment. And this is something that uh, uh, we're gonna uh, disclose very soon, and uh, that will also address these uh, scaling issues. Where in this in a small setup, you could already anticipate the scale issues. And when I talk about scale issue, it's really about oh, can I put my drum there and my snare at the back and you know, when you have a 300 meter sound system uh, with a like 300 meter diameter dome, uh, you might have a lot of uh, timing issues for sure, because the speed of sound is not, you know, the speed of light. And speaking of ambisonic, like I personally don't believe um, object-based audio and ambisonics are mutually exclusive, especially in this case, because you touched on the diversity of uh, professionals and creatives within our ecosystem and wide range of potential projects that we might be involved with. And, and, you know, ambisonic recordings are very much part of many people's production pipeline. And having like a very flexible decoder that could, um, you know, take an ambisonic signal and decode it into any preferred channel-based format in conjunction with object panning would be a very lovely and um, useful feature, in fact. Yes, I agree. I think, uh, the, the, especially for recordings, you're completely right. Because, uh, I mean, in live sound, we use a lot of spot microphones. And so they are basically objects that's easy to define. But uh, when you do field recordings or ambience or all these kind of uh, activities, it's true that uh, ambisonics is, brings so many benefits that uh, it's very important to be able to mix the two workflows sometimes. I agree. Yeah. The very common scenario is um, maybe like... Um, a creative is working on a piece of content with uh, in the studio and has to utilize the existing hardware system that is already in place, which is unlikely to be at acoustics because acoustics is in a very different bracket of kind of professional hardware for live sound. But maybe they might get uh, two or three days if they get lucky on the location when the say the venue gets uh, all the installations including speakers in that case it could be L acoustics especially if it's recommended because sometimes commissioners do consult with sound designers and mixers what type of speaker would you recommend and why can you justify can you talk through the features so that kind of uh, easy and flawless connectivity and integration between working in the studio creating content getting it as far as possible easily dealing with those kind of logistical limitations and having limited amount of time to get the venue optimize the piece off you go we open for from tomorrow for the audience that's yeah that's 
Yeah, I think you summed it up pretty well. There is always, you know, the bigger the space, the more costly it is. So the less time you have. And and it's basically, uh, I think the most time you have is with a pair of headphones, right? You could have your laptop and a pair of headphones. That's very easy to do. You can do that almost anywhere in the world, in a train, in a bus or on the beach, whatever. Then uh, the studio is a bit more costly already. And then uh, the sooner you reach, I mean, the closer you get to the live production, you have usually two stages. You have the, you know, the band rehearsal where it's a small studio still and you could have a small setup, but still quite a few weeks to try things out. And then you got the second stage, which is usually called the production rehearsals. And that's already with a full scale scene and, uh, you know, decors and lighting. And that's already in a big warehouse, which is quite costly for productions. And that's where you don't have the time anymore to try things. So this is why we wanted to, you know, move upstream and go back to as close as possible to the the creation steps. And this is where I think when you bring the immersive tools, you can really give the right ideas. Because if you arrive too late in the game, people don't have the either the time or the the, the brain capacity to imagine the show in a different way you know so if you can compose your even compose your music or compose your piece with space in mind it's completely different this way gets really interesting because we talked about logistics and convenience and kind of um more kind of commonsensical aspects of the whole production pipeline but put that aside there's another element and i think that's something that yet to come uh, with new generation creatives uh, going into the future is conception of the content from immersive audio standpoint to begin with, as opposed to in the many ways, like maybe traditionally you would work with uh, multiple mono and stereo stems uh, of a, say like a, a music piece. And you try to recreate that mix and remold it into like, say Dolby Atmos or um, another format or, or something like that conceiving with those creative and technical capabilities to begin with and understanding how we will get played back and realized at the very end will empower creatives and potentially will lead to new genres, new ways of doing things. I think that's a key that kind of potentially even more important than than what we've discussed so far. Yes, and I think we're still early days in that field. Huh? It's a bit like the early days of stereo when we talk about special audio. And uh, I think it's mostly because the tools are not ready yet for the creators. So in our, from our little, you know, live environment, we try to, we really try to uh, set some stones in the right direction. And we hope that uh, if we, you know, uh, offer tools uh, that can allow that a bit more easily. Um, that at least that would be a small contribution to that. But um, um, I completely agree. I think that uh, the um, the ability to create directly in in a uh, in space is is amazing. And uh, uh, if uh, you know music producers had already uh, uh, a special audio setup in their studios, I believe that they would approach layering guitars or composing rhythms in a very different manner, or just playing with harmonies. Or you know, I, I I've got plenty of ideas. I never have the time to try, but uh, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of things to do. Let's dive into the nitty gritty. And I think you have um, hundreds of ideas and answers to this question, but what does immersive audio mean for live show? Small scale, big scale, what immersive audio does within the live performance that traditional audio can't do from musicians and engineers standpoint, but also from the audience. I'll start from the audience standpoint, which I think is the most, uh, the most striking. Let's start with, the, um, for example, going to uh, a musical in London, in the West End, okay? You go to see your preferred, your favorite musical there, and you're sitting maybe on the fourth row, quite good position, but not exactly at the center, okay? So you are a bit on the side of the venue, you're looking at maybe five or six singers on stage, and you see them very nicely, maybe a bit on your right, you turn your head there, and you don't hear them from where they are. You know, you hear them from the speaker on the left of the stage. So it's quite hard for your brain to, you know, reconnect the sound modality and, and the visual elements because they are not coming from the same location. So there is a bit a suspicion of disbelief, you know, it's it's like it doesn't work together. It's not real. So th this is what we wanted really to, to solve as an issue, is to place the sound where the visual is. That was really one of the main goals of Elisa. And this you can do only with a, um, a better distribution of speakers, you know, across the stage. And so it's really addressing a localization issue, I could say. And, and the main obvious benefit is, oh, actually, when you hear the, the actors where they are, you just 
almost forget there is a sound system in there. So second example would be you you go to a nice amphitheater looking at, a, or maybe a bit bigger, you go to a stadium to see a classical music show, you know, like uh, Ennio Morricone, uh, you know, great music, big audience, and it's an orchestra, you know, so acoustic instruments. So they need to be amplified there. And again, if you put an immersive system, just, you know, an array of speakers above the audience, above the stage, with the proper localization of the instruments, you, again, you forget there is a PA system there. So you get the, you know, the naturalness of the orchestra and the power of the PA. And it's very impressive that so quickly when the sound matches the visual, you just forget there is a sound system there. So it's almost a lot of technology for achieving something which is usually natural. So it's basically technology that can be forgotten by the audience, almost that. So that's mostly about localization. If you want to make it more striking again, then you can also go into surround systems with you know, left speaker, right speaker, rear speakers, or maybe ceiling speakers. And then you can really immerse the audience with a, really the sensation of being in the sound, like in a cinema. And just for clarity, um, Elisa is completely format agnostic. Yes, or you can uh, you can do uh, just uh, uh, like a frontal system with seven speakers or five speakers. Usually we, we set at minimum five speakers above the stage. That's the uh, minimum viable. But uh, you could go up to, um, yeah, we've done shows with... Uh, at the Albert Hall, for example, with a complete surround system. I think there were uh, 26 channels. We've done shows with 55 channels, and uh, it's really a format agnostic. So you could do uh, the traditional cinema formats, mm -hmm. uh, uh, IMAX, Dolby, uh, these kind of uh, normalized standards. And maybe a, a quick detail is that uh, you can actually define your mix. You define your mix, you just position, oh, my guitar is there, my bass is in front of me, and my drummer is on the right. But you don't say my drummer is going to speaker five, you know, it's really object-based. So you keep your mix, you define your objects, you say, this object is uh, a bit in that region of space, and this object is in another section of the space. And then you can completely separately define your speaker layout. So it means that when you tour, when you change venues or projects, you can just update the speaker layout and you will keep the mix. It's true that for theater, and uh, it's a great uh, it's a great tool for you know sound design of theater. That's a big big uh, thing in theaters, and to create ambiences or special effects, uh, moving objects. That's that's great because localization is so much more accurate than the uh, the previous speaker designs would allow for. Uh, but also for music, I would say that uh, it's very interesting to listen to a complex mix with object based rather than a stereo format because in a stereo mix everything is coming from the same box the same speaker you know so your brain has a hard time to differentiate some instruments sometimes oh, it's sometimes quite hard to differentiate between i don't know the accordion and the violin on the same frequency range but as soon as you use space and uh, more speakers you can just use your you know it's called a spatial segregation you can just distinguish much more easily as a listener where is which instrument. So you can really focus on the violin or the flute or the horns. And that's it's a, it's a much more pleasant experience. Would you say that wavefield synthesis could be a, a really interesting avenue for uh, modern speaker design um, setups where, like we already touched on, say, traditional theatre production, where you can really move the sound, make it alive and bring it to the audience, which could be also useful for like projection mapping and just filling those gaps that traditionally um, hard to replicate on the stage with, with audience. And I, I wonder if you have any kind of ideas about that on the roadmap or perhaps even some case studies to talk about? So I think it's, a, it's an interesting question, uh, wavefield synthesis. In theory, it's a, it's a great concept because uh, it relies on uh, re really uh, you know, playing the sound waves and not just re rely on, on the phantom panning, for example. Um, but in reality, for live sound, um, live sound requires quite a big step between speakers, you know, sometimes the speakers, they are spaced a few meters apart, at least four or five meters in, in some installations. And it means that the principles of WFS cannot really be applied. You will have a lot of uh, frequency artifacts. So uh, there are situations where these techniques are, are quite useful. For example, I could say for, you know, the small speakers you would put in front of the stage, for example, the front fields for the first rows and uh, this is when um, the loudspeakers that do not really overlap each other so each speaker is covering a specific 
region of the space. So maybe when you're sitting in the first row of the theater, you might hear two or three speakers. And this is where um, techniques like WFS can really help. But for large-scale audiences, and when I talk about the main system above the stage, actually there is too much overlap between the loudspeakers uh, for WFS to to be really, really performing well. So this is why um, most of the, the 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 best results can be achieved with different types of algorithms. But there are specific cases where WFS can be really helpful. I believe that for the large-scale events, this is not the best approach, but uh, there are some some small regions of the of the venues like front fields under balconies these kind of applications that's very interesting yeah i can i can give you some examples because we are a bit at the forefront of that and uh, we have some good examples to to cite uh, i could tell about one tour we've done in france with a, an electronic artist called molecule and uh, it was a very interesting concept in my opinion where um the artist and the sound engineer were together in a central stage in the center of the venue and all the speaker layout was around them and the audience was between the artist and the sound system so everyone was within the same sound system you know there was no monitoring system for the for the artist the pa was the monitoring system and um, it was a very interesting combination between the electronic artist and the sound engineer. So the artist was playing his tracks, you know, his uh, beat machines and samplers and synths. And, uh, and the sound engineer was doing the, the specialization of the objects. And there was really a, a, a challenge between the two of them, you know. Oh, I placed this hi-hat there. Oh, okay, I'm going to change the beat because there is this thing happening in space. So it was really a, you know, back and forth um, effort between them. And the audience gave a tremendous feedback on that. And specifically, when you talk about sound and lighting, this specific example was um, very interesting because there was a strong decision from the artist to not put any lights. It was a concert in the dark. So... Um, it was all about the immersive audio experience for, for that uh, particular tour. And it was very, very interesting. Another example I could cite is a, a music festival we've done in, in Thailand two, uh, for two years in a row called the Wonderful Festival. Uh, we worked with an English production company that spent a few days in a studio with electronic artists to remix their music in a dome format with a complete 3D sound system. And again, the, the artist and the audience was sharing the same PA. So I, I believe that the notion between stage and audience and sound can be completely rethought or redesigned with, with immersive audio. And there is something very interesting there. I guess that's the very reason why we even doing this podcast is because immersive audio brings this novelty and excitement to every small pocket of the audio industry in general. And obviously live sound is no exception. And it just happened to be the, the changes that might happen in the future are actually quite immense and impactful. Let's switch the gear now. And not that I want to talk about it, but um, it needs to be talked about. COVID-19 obviously decimated the live industry, unfortunately. And you have a very good perspective on what's been happening. Um, what are your thoughts? So um, it's been very, very hard. Um, uh, this is one of these industries like, you know, the, the tourism industry or the hospitality industry at the moment in the, in the, in the US and Europe and, and a lot of countries. Um, all the live venues and live shows have been cancelled since March. Um, 
some of the biggest players on the, on the planet in terms of uh, you know production like i could cite live nation i think they've they've lost 95% of their revenue over the last 6 months which is an amazing number you know it's it's uh, it's huge so um it has been having consequences on all the steps of the live industry you know and the first affected are the crews obviously uh, there is a lot of uh, people working uh, in the, in the live industry uh, that are freelancers self employed and from you know uh, from the day to the next they have been found without a job and without any revenue uh, there were some countries where the state is a bit more helpful than others but uh, in in countries like the US uh, it was particularly dramatic uh, the UK as well and um we've seen a lot of um you know um activity to federate and and make our voice heard from different governments and it has been um successful in some countries less in others but uh, what i felt uh, good in that uh, distress i would say is that uh, there is a lot of uh, fraternity in this industry and uh that was quite visible during these hard times it has been hard as well for manufacturers like us and um uh with a lot of uh, turnover obviously and uh, and uh, we needed ways to you know uh accompany our customer the best way we could so we launched a lot of uh, webinars to help them continue training and and uh, understand uh, the 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 products and and you know uh, occupy the days where you stuck at home etc cetera, etc cetera. so we did a lot of that and uh we tried to help as much as we could um our partners to you know deploy uh systems in, in different ways for example uh, one of our partners has used our speakers to to do a virtual crowd system for the NBA season in the US you know so instead of having audience in a, in a stadium you would have speakers all around them and uh, they had designed quite a clever uh, uh, voice uh, crowd noise generation system and uh, this is the kind of creativity you find in this uh, in this uh, situations of crisis and um, so i believe that now we we can i think the hardest for us was to to be completely in the dark uh when i think back about may or june it was really hard to know what when the situation would end when would be the light at the end of the tunnel and i think that now in recent weeks we start to hear about um you know a vaccine being almost approved and uh, it seems that uh, 2021 will see more live events for sure potentially from the summer uh which means that uh, the 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 situation will improve uh from we believe the the half of next year so there will be uh, there will be hits obviously uh, there have been companies uh, uh completely disappearing from the the industry so it has been pretty hard on some um but i believe that it will it will come stronger afterwards it will come stronger than ever because uh, you know there was a lot of um, thoughts about is the live industry dead forever but honestly when you when you stuck at home watching live streams i think it only gives you the envy to go back to a live venue and and experience that with other human beings i could comment on this virtual uh virtual live streams i think it's a very interesting topic as well because uh we've been asking ourselves is this the future of live sound or is this something which is going to become uh another channel and i believe it's becoming a very interesting channel for artists to touch their audience as well and i don't think it's really exactly like a live show and uh very very interesting experiments with uh you know people playing shows in, in video games environments like Fortnite um uh i believe it's a, it's a new medium i wouldn't say it's really threatening the live sound industry or, or the live industry as a whole it's just going to be another channel really you almost read my mind because i was going to ask you that question live streaming and virtual events because inevitably as you already alluded companies like yourselves have been thinking how they can fit into that because obviously it's massive and and furthermore regardless whether or not we prevail and we'll come back to normal the live streaming and virtual is still going to be absolutely huge it's it's a new generation media in and it comes in various shapes and flavors i was wondering if kind of immersive audio in general comes to the rescue and can offer almost like a business opportunity and expansion of ways how to deploy content to audiences because um I'm just thinking right now any type of event you've described today on this interview could be streamed in parallel in immersive fashion where people could enjoy visuals as well as there's some kind of binaural rendition or maybe even head tracked object based mix 
from the comfort of their home if they want. And it's not the same as live sound, but in the same way, we, we don't want to go to cinema every time we want to watch a film. Sometimes we want to go to the cinema, sometimes we want to watch Netflix on a, on laptop or even on a phone. I'm, I'm a massive football fan. For me, going to the game is like the biggest event ever. But I, I watch a lot of games on my mobile phone. I'm very happy with that. And uh, these are two different things and they're not mutually exclusive. So I was wondering, um, in terms of acoustics in general and Elisa and immersive audio, what kind of takeaways from the past nine months that you see as more of an opportunity and possibility going into the future? I completely agree with you. Yeah, I think that uh, one of them is the, obviously it's not going to be either or it's not going to be streaming or live sound you know and i believe the the one of the key takeaways of the covid-19 crisis is that these two modalities will exist together exactly like watching a, a game in the stadium or on your mobile phone it's going to be more I think it's going to be more of a trend for live sound as well and live tours. You know, maybe 10 years ago, the trend was, okay, I can buy the DVD uh, 15 years ago. Maybe you could buy the DVD of the tour after, you know, after the tour. Now it's more about, okay, I can uh, potentially watch some uh, videos two months after the tour. But it might be now that each of the tour dates is streamed into different regions or you could, you know, buy a few tickets to to extend the audience. I think there is tremendous opportunity for live production companies to augment their revenues as well by selling more virtual tickets as well as physical tickets. And definitely there is an opportunity for live sound there. There are a few technical challenges because it involves, uh, you know, uh, streaming, uh, distribution to a big number of people. And uh, this is where basically the world of broadcast meets the world of um, live sound. And they are not exactly the same worlds, but uh, I think uh, there are some very interesting uh, crossovers to be to be explored there. And um, there is this um, initiative we are driving at the moment called... Um, ADMOSC. Uh, it's a bit technical, but basically the world of broadcast is already quite advanced in using object-based audio for live sound and especially for sports in particular. Where the, I think the, your football example is very good. Uh, you could stream to many different countries with different languages for commentators, or you know you could choose between more crowd or less crowd, or, or the red crowd or the blue crowd. You know, and uh, these kind of formats they already exist in broadcast world. And I think now the next challenge is how to connect the live object based with the broadcast object based. And, uh, and uh, we already having discussions with the partners in, in, in you know, facilitating these kind of workflows. What initiatives are there? What, what's taking place right now to help the sector, both on large kind of company level, like yourselves, as well as the individuals like freelancers or even artists themselves within the UK, Europe, or even globally? Actually, there is a, I could cite uh, a few of them. Um, they have been starting from the UK. You know, there have been a, a campaign called uh, We Make Events. And uh, this was supported by a lot of uh, production companies, rental providers and manufacturers as well. And uh, it started in the spring with uh, some large-scale events in London as well. And it got... Um, it got um, followed up by the same initiative in the US as well, uh, called Red Alert. Uh, we make events Red Alert. And um, I could cite as well a very, very um, uh, helpful um, charity in the US called Crew Nation um, that has been helping all the crew, basically the, the live crews that uh, found themselves without a job um, uh, to make sure that uh, they, they could uh, go through the crisis. So um, we've been, uh, you know, uh, We've been uh, highly affected as well, but we, we tried to contribute to these efforts as much as we could with also some communication visibility and events. I was as well in the London event with some other partners. And um, I think this is uh, the best we can do uh, is to make sure that these people are heard from their local governments to make sure that uh, they're not forgotten. Can I ask you about your OWL project, <laughs> which is a programmable effects pedal, which is something you've been involved with personally and it's currently on Kickstarter. Tell us more. Yes, oh, that's a, that's a side project that was quite fun. So um, maybe do you know the music hike space, the London music hike space, Oliver? Mm, no, it's a, it doesn't ring a bell. It's a yeah, it's a collective of uh, like uh, coders and hardware designers and hackers, and uh, it's basically a subsection of the London hack space and uh, interested in music and music gear or software. And I met a few people there because uh, when I arrived in London, I didn't know many people. So I wanted to, you know, meet like-minded people. 
So I went there and met some great, great uh, people. And uh, with a few of them, we started this project of, um, of uh, you know, we were all playing with software like MaxMSP or Pure Data. Uh, and we wanted a way to take that away from the laptop onto the stage, you know. So we dreamt how, how, how cool would it be to, you know, design a, uh, a PD patch and run it on a, on a stone pedal. And uh, so we toyed with this idea and uh, then we did a few prototypes. And in the end, we managed to, to find a way to cross-compile, um, you know, a Max and a PD patch into hardware, uh, basically an embedded uh, ARM platform using a, a tiny uh, ARM M4. And it was so fun, we decided to, to run a Kickstarter. And um, it was um, successfully funded. And so we, we sold a few hundred of them across the world. And uh, I believe uh, well, that's a while back now. It's maybe almost 10 years ago. Um, but uh, it was great fun to design that. And I think it was uh, also the opportunity to meet with a lot of uh, very interesting people. So I believe uh, the whole project is open source, open hardware, open source. So uh, you can build your own. Everything is on the, on the OWL website. And uh, there is uh, hundreds of patches you can load, load onto the pedal. I believe now there are some uh, similar commercial projects. Um, uh, I'm sure I could find the names again, but it uh, doesn't come to mind straight away. Oh, it's a rabbit hole. You could spend your, you know, your whole week just playing with it. So <laughs> be careful. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I believe there is a modular version now as well. So if you want, if you're into modulars, you can have a uh, one of your racks uh, with one of them included. And um, I believe the a similar commercial project is called Mod, the Mod Pedal, which is running a um, uh, similar concept. Guillaume, can you give one piece of advice that really helped you in your career? I think maybe the only piece of advice I would give is uh, don't think you know it all because uh, it's really uh, the sound uh, domain is always learning and learning and learning. It, it's crazy uh, how much you learn every day and still after, uh, you know, uh, even if you're 60 years old, I'm still sure you, you're learning about stuff in audio. Could it be on, you know, perception or audio quality? And uh, I think it's a very humbling field where um, uh, when you start to realize you you learned a bit of it, there is so much more you need to learn. So I think it's really about curiosity and, and trying things and uh, trying to improve all the time. Uh, it's really a fascinating field, I find. And uh, maybe, or maybe I've got a second advice. I think it's also a very friendly uh, industry. So uh, any people wanting to break into this kind of uh, field, I think they should not be afraid of contacting people and asking for advice because uh, I believe a lot of people are happy to share their experiences. And uh, I think this is the best we can do is to, to share and advise and connect with other people and, and point to some different directions, et cetera, et cetera. We've, uh, we've recently released our first pair of uh, in-ear monitors. And uh, it's the first time you can actually have uh, the, the kind of um, live sound experience on headphones uh, with like the live sound contour, you know, the acoustic signature of, of a live PA. And that's quite interesting. So uh, we have that for demonstration in our London showroom. So anyone interested to learn more, um, uh, they should go to the Eliza Immersive website. It's uh, elizaimmersive.com. And uh, it's easy to arrange for demos and visit our showroom to learn more. I think that would be the best point of entry. And we'll make sure to include all the relevant links in the podcast show notes. Thank you, Oliver. Guillaume, it's been fascinating to talk to you and learn more about live sound industry. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for your time. Yeah, me too. It was very enjoyable. Thanks, Oliver. Take care. You too. Bye. Before you go, we want to hear from you. If you'd like to let us know what you think about our show, please take the quick survey in this episode's description. It'll help us make the Immersive Audio Podcast even better. We really appreciate your feedback. You've been listening to the Immersive Audio Podcast. This episode was produced by Oliver Cadell and Michelle Chan and included music by Nobs Bergamo. If you can, head to our page on iTunes and leave us a review and rating. It really helps us out in pushing our show further. The podcast is also available on Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Visit 1618digital.com to access the show notes and other episodes. Follow us at 1618digital on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening. <laughs>